We're going to be looking at the uh, account of, of John's gospel, the Easter account from his point of view. And did you see right at the end there, John tells us the reason that he's writing his entire gospel. He says in verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, did you hear their belief is absolutely central to John's purpose of writing his gospel. He is writing so that you and I today would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life, life now, eternal life in his name. Belief is key. But it begs the question, like, what is belief in Jesus Christ exactly? What does that mean to believe in him today? The new atheists tell us, I quote, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And so you might be thinking to yourself, well, well, is belief in Jesus Christ reasonable for modern people in the 21st century? Perhaps some of you feel, you know, no, this is true. You, you, you feel it to be true, but it, it all happened 2,000 years ago. And so what about for my life here and now, right now? What is the relevance for me? Now, some of you might see its truth, see its relevance. But because of what you've done in your past, because of what's happening in your life right now, you may think, is this really true for me personally? And in John chapter 20, the author John gives us these three wonderful vignettes, these little episodes, little stories about himself, about Mary, about Thomas, to show us what real belief in Jesus Christ is about. It's not irrational, it is relevant, and it is for everyone. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is not irrational. We see that, by the way, John himself, the author, comes to believe in verses 1 to 10. So our passage, if you've got it open on your phone or open in a Bible at home, our passage starts with Mary Madeline going to the tomb early Sunday morning. She noticed that the stone in front of the tomb has been rolled away. Expensive tombs like this one, we know from previous chapter, Joseph of Arimathea owns it, would normally have a disc-like stone that has been rolled down a groove in front of it. So easy to close, much harder to open. You need several strong men to do it. And so Mary immediately thinks someone's stolen the body and dashes back to Peter and John to tell them. Peter and John run to the tomb. It seems John has faster twitch muscle fibers than Peter because we're told that he outruns Peter and reaches the tomb first. And there we see, true to their personalities, John is more restrained, he's more reflective, he's sort of peering into the tomb, surveying the scene. What's going on? And Peter Brash, always running headlong <laughs> into trouble, just flies straight past him into the tomb. What on earth is going on? And he sees the strips of linen lying there. Verse 6. 
Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Now we're told more about the cloth. The cloth was still lying in its place, literally in the original Greek, twirled by itself, separate from the linen. And as you read this, you can almost hear Peter's minds and thoughts like whirring inside of him. What has gone on? Why are the strips of linen still here? If grave robbers had stolen the body, why would they spend so much time unraveling it all and leaving it there all neatly in place? They wouldn't do that. Grave robbers don't do that. They go in, they grab the body, everything else with it. But there's a calm, there's a peacefulness about this scene. If the authorities had stolen the body, again, why would they meticulously take all these strips of linen on and actually leave it in such a way that it looks like Jesus has risen from the dead? with even the head bits separate, and it twirled all by itself. He's thinking, how on earth do you make this happen? As if Jesus' body had simply passed through the grave clothes, as one commentator puts it, like a discarded chrysalis from which a butterfly has emerged. I hope you can see there is no irrationality here. There is no evading thinking avoiding the study of evidence, evaluating. Peter is very much thinking here. He's surveying the scene. He's trying to work out what has gone on based on what he can see. Finally, verse 8, the other disciple, that, by the way, is for John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw And believed. Belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is not irrational. But you say, Mark, that was 2,000 years ago. That evidence is no longer available to us. We can't survey the scene like Peter and John. We cannot see the strips of linen today. We can't see in the same way and believe. And that is absolutely true. We can't. We cannot survey the scene like Peter and John. We cannot see the strips of linen. But here's the thing. In verse 9, we are told we don't need to. We've got even better evidence than that today. Did you notice that little statement in the parenthesis? They... Peter and John, still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John's belief in Jesus Christ is still not fully formed. He's yet to understand what the whole of the Old Testament and the Scriptures had said about the Messiah, that he would have to rise from the dead. But we have the whole testimony of Scripture before us today including this account, including the words of Jesus himself, destroy this temple, referring to his body, in three days I will raise it up again. I have authority to lay my life down, I have authority to take it up again. In verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, 
you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You don't need the strips of linen to believe in him. You don't need to see the, survey the scene like Peter and John. All you need is the testimony of Scripture, the eyewitness evidence, the words of God himself, and understand them and believe in him. So if you are someone here, new to the Christian message, we often have people looking into Christian things, it's great to have you with us. If you are unsure of what you believe today, let me encourage you to, to take a gospel, one of the eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's one, we've got a load at the back. They're free, happy Easter, please take one. If you're joining us online, go on biblegateway.com to search Mark's gospel, John's gospel, you'll read Mark in about an hour, John in a few hours. And study it for yourself. Survey the scene we are given from the eyewitness accounts. Think hard about it. Investigate the evidence. Weigh it up. And see for yourself and believe. Please do not think for one second that belief in Jesus Christ means leaving your brain at the door, as you sometimes hear people say. It's ridiculous. To think that belief in Jesus requires you to not think things through, to not study the... That the new atheists may say that faith is an intellectual cop-out. I hope you can see the Bible never describes belief in Jesus Christ like that. We are called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So bring your intellectual doubts to the Scriptures. Ask God, hey, if he's there, to reason with you from the Bible. Ask his Holy Spirit to persuade you for the arguments for him. Jesus invites that sort of rational investigation. We can't go to the tomb like the first disciples, but we can go straight to the scriptures, which has always been where a fully formed belief in Jesus Christ is to be found. So that's the first thing to see. Belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is not irrational. But secondly, belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is very much experiential. Just look at how Mary comes to believe in verses 11 to 18. Verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. I know today we tend to think of Easter Day if we're Christian as a day of hope and a day of celebration. He's risen and he's risen indeed and hallelujah. That is not how it started for Mary. It started with deep sorrow. She is crying. She is weeping. The one she has loved, she's lost him. And not just that, she now thinks his body has been stolen and desecrated. She is so overcome by grief that she can't even recognize Jesus when he is standing right in front of her in verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him 
and I will get him. It is heartbreaking. Do you tend to think that if if only people could see the risen Lord Jesus Christ today in the flesh, then they would believe? This is Mary Magdalene. Someone who loved Jesus deeply. Someone who calls him Lord. Someone who would have done anything to have him back in her arms right now. She doesn't believe it. She can't see it. She's looking right at him in verse 14. She can hear his voice in verse 15. But from her point of view, her scientific framework, I mean, people don't rise from the dead, do they? It must be the gardener. And he must have taken the body. Where is he? It is not an easy thing to believe in the resurrection. I hope that is an encouragement to those of you here who are skeptical, who are doubtful. But notice how Mary does come round to believe. What Jesus says to her, one word, verse 16, Mary. That's it. One word, Mary, her name, calls upon everything changes. She turns around, she cries out, teacher. She grabs hold of him, she won't let go of him, she believes. He's alive. And he's risen from the dead. Now what has happened? What has changed for Mary? What is it about being called by her name that connects with her on such a deep level. Was it something that Jesus said to her before? Was it the same tone of voice? Something deeply personal, something deeply experiential has just happened. What is it? We're not told. But you know, I was thinking about it personally as I was preparing this sermon. I know what this is. Because the same, thing, the same thing's happened to me. And I wonder if it's happened to you. I was at university, final year, studying mathematics. Fancied myself as quite a scientist, could work everything out, met a Christian. Talks talking to me about the claims of Jesus Christ. How ridiculous. Oh, why don't you have a look at it in the scriptures with me? All right, why not? Start looking into it. The evidence for the resurrection. Evidence for the historicity of the Bible. I find myself getting more and more persuaded, logically, rationally, intellectually. As a mathematician, after a few months, I think to myself, it is more probable that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead than he hasn't. But that's all 2,000 years ago. What about here and now? Where is he? How's it work? Christians start telling me about prayer, about a relationship with God, about talking to him in prayer, about him hearing, about him answering. Oh, come on. But there I found myself on my knees. I thought I'd try it out. I prayed a prayer based on what I understood prayer was at the time. Hey, Lord, if you're there, show yourself to me. Here's a prayer I want you to answer. I'm not going to go into it now, but I'll happily talk to you about it afterwards. 24 hours later, he answered it in a deeply personal, deeply powerful way. And I heard his call on my life, Mark. 
I am here. I am real. I, may, I did make you. I do love you. I did die for you. And now I'm calling you to follow me. Deeply personal, deeply transformative, an experience of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Belief in him is not irrational, but it definitely is experiential. And so, look, if you are someone looking into Christian things, if you're someone who will go away with one of those gospels today, I hope you do, to study the evidence, to investigate the claims of Jesus, be open to his call on your life. He is calling you to a personal relationship with him. He promises to speak to you through the words of the Bible, personally, intimately. He will call you by his name, by your name, as you read through the gospel. If you hear that call, do not hold back. I'm told J.K. Rowling's original Harry Potter pitch was rejected 12 times by publishers before it was taken on by Bloomsbury. Have you heard this? And since made them billions of pounds. Can you imagine being one of those publishers that rejected J.K. Rowling? <laughs> what a mistake to make. Of course you say, who was she? Nobody knew about her back then. Who would have known? She'd be so popular, books would be so popular, it'd sell billions and make all this money through all these films and all the rest of it. Do not make the same mistake with Jesus Christ. When he calls you by name, he is not a nobody. He is the saviour of the world. He is the risen Lord. He is the lover of your soul. When you hear his call, don't hold back. And if you're someone here who is a follower of Jesus Christ, it can be so easy to lose sight of the personal, experiential nature of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you lost sight of that? Is he calling you back to him right, right now? Is he doing that? Is he saying, this Easter bank holiday weekend, spend some more time with me I've got so much to teach you from, from my word. I want to hear you as you talk to me in prayer. So much to do in your heart right now. Remind you of my love. Point you in the right direction. Do you know what the very first question is? In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this is something back in the 1600s, this was actually a sort of questions and answers to nurture children in the Christian faith. Question one, the very first one, the most fundamental, what is the chief end of humanity? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Are you enjoying him right now? What would it look like for you, for me, to enjoy him this bank holiday weekend? Belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, it's not irrational. Belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is experiential. Thirdly, finally, and more briefly, belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is for everyone. Some of you, 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 you see the truth of the resurrection. 
You're convinced of it now, rationally. Or maybe as you came here today. Maybe some of you already see the relevance of it for your life. You want this relationship with Jesus Christ, but you're thinking to yourself, would God still be interested in me? After all I've done, after the mistakes I've made, after the crimes I've committed, after the guilt I am feeling. Others may be thinking, hasn't God already given up on me with all the things that have happened to me and the suffering I've had to endure and the shame I feel and I'm all broken and I'm unlovable and can this really be true for me too? Verse 17, Jesus says to Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm sending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is good news for everyone. For all the brothers and sisters, for Peter who had denied Jesus three times at his death, but will be restored to Jesus in chapter 21. No matter how far you fall into sin, there is always forgiveness. There is always a way back with Jesus Christ. If you confess your sin to him, if that's you, he is for you. This is good news for Mary, who experienced terrible suffering in her life. There's just one thing we're told about Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8, verse 2, that she was overcome with seven demons, but Jesus healed her and called her and is now equipping her to be the first evangelist in Christian history as she goes off and tells the disciples. God does not give up on anyone in this life, no matter what has happened to you. This is good news for Thomas. With all of his doubts, Verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus invites those doubts in verse 27. Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what does Thomas do? Does he reach out? Does he poke Jesus in the side? My Lord and my God. Because he hears the call. And because he knows this is good news for him too. And it is good news for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever has happened to you, Come to Jesus Christ now. Believe in him. As we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, feed on him by faith. As we go outside to sing congregationally for the first time in over a year, sing to him and say in your heart, my Lord, my God. And this will be an Easter day you will never forget. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much indeed for this eyewitness account. Your words through John to us today of that first Easter Sunday. 
the tomb empty, the strips of linen there. John seeing and believing, Mary not getting it, you calling her by name. And Thomas's doubts. But you saying, look, I'm here. Take a look. Believe in me, my Lord and my God. Please, Spirit, do that work in each of our hearts now. Draw us to Jesus Christ. Believe in him and live for him today and the rest of our lives. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.